Good afternoon and welcome to another one of the Sirius Security Seminars. Uh, we are in our 14th year of these seminars and uh, we have yet another interesting speaker to present to you this afternoon. Sid Stamm is a PhD student at Indiana University where he's working with Professor Marcus Jacobson. Uh, he's a graduate of Rose Holman Institute of Technology right here in Indiana and then went uh, on to IU where he's been working on a number of different things. He's going to talk to us today about his work on uh, various kinds of invasions of browser technology and how to deal with uh, various kinds of phishing attacks. So please join me in welcoming Sid Stan. Sid. Thank you. So everybody's heard the term phishing, right? Because phishing is evil. The latest trend in, in the news is to scare people out of using online identity because it could be stolen. And so everybody knows that phishing is definitely a growing business. The evil guys want to steal your ID and your password and your bank account number so that they can have your money. Um, and because phishing is a big deal, um, people are trying to stop it, naturally, right? So the attacks have to become more complex. And we've been seeing more and more convincing phishing attacks um, and more and more confusing to understand phishing attacks. And so we need these detection and prevention measures to figure out how to stop phishing before it starts so people get to keep their money. So today I'm going to talk, um, I'm going to show you some example phishing attacks for people who aren't maybe up to date on exactly what phishing is and how it works. Um, I'm going to talk about these more complex context-aware phishing attacks, also sometimes called spear phishing. Um, I'm going to show you a specific attack that's particularly nasty. And then I'll show you some solutions to that attack. So I got this phishing email today. It's a little blurry, um, but I had to whip it into the slides as fast as I could. It's from Fifth Third Bank, and this is the bank I use. So I pay attention to these phishing emails very carefully. It basically says that our department has a new scheduled upgrade, and we need you to go to our website, log in, and give us your information again. So naturally, I'm a little leery of this. Also, I was leery because there was white space at the end of it. And in that white space, it says, following these, the cycle would start again. Aylesbury, beseech, well, we'll have to talk about that, won't we? Stuff that doesn't make any sense. And this is why it was caught by my spam filter. So immediately, I know it's not real. Now, a lot of people wouldn't notice that text down at the bottom. So that's what deceives them. And if I were to click on the image, I would go to this website that looks like Fifth Third Bank's website. Um, and it asks me to log in. Am I a personal user, a small business, corporate user? Um, what's my full name? What state am I in? What's my ID? What's my password? So which city do I do my banking in? What's my mother's maiden name? Other things that I probably shouldn't have to provide all at the same amount of time. you know. But the site looks pretty legitimate. Let me show you a, a picture of the real site. Looks pretty much the same. Now switching back. They did a good job of copying it, but the real site only asks for your ID and password. They want you to log in, verify who you are. The phishing site wants to steal it from you. Another example of a phishing email is this one. I actually sent this to my professor. Says, Dear Marcus, thank you for your recent October 30th purchase, blah, blah, blah. Now, whoever sent this, which is me, happened to know that he had purchased something and when he had purchased something. So you can use this. A fisher can use this against 
a target to say, I know something about you. And now this email is more convincing than, hi, I'm Amazon. You should come to our website and give us your info. Instead, it's saying, you bought something from me. Come to my website and give me more info. So this is an example of a different type of motivation. This is context aware. This phishing attack knows something about its target. Here's a more advanced type of phishing attack. Um, this is basically pretending to be from Marcus's wife. It's basically saying, hi, uh, people down at the bank want you to go to this website and update our information. Unfortunately, she didn't really send it, so this is a fake email, but it's impossible to tell a fake email from a real email some of the times. I can write an email just like this. In fact, I did. <laughs> and it appears to come right from his wife, even though it didn't. Now that's the most convincing type. If you know something about someone and you know who their friends are, you can convince them of almost anything online. Now there are three specifics about context-aware attacks. You have to obtain data about the targets before you can try and fish them and steal their identity. Once you've done this, you have to customize each email sent out. You can't just bulk email everybody. Most spam is bulk email. They get a big list and they send it out to everybody. A lot of phishing attacks are bulk email. The only thing about context-aware that's really, really important, and this is why we focus on it, is that it's really convincing. A fisher will get a much higher yield rate, or many more people will fall for his attack if he can use context-aware phishing. For example, here's a social network. Alice knows Bob, Cindy, and David, and they each know some other people. Maybe you're familiar with uh, MySpace or Facebook or something like that. Those are all social networks. Well, a fisher could mine a network like this for relationships and figure out who's friends. And then they could craft emails from somebody's friends and send them out and send out legitimate looking emails. Last year at Indiana University, some friends of mine actually did a study like this. And uh, they crafted emails that were mined from a social website, like, the, like a MySpace or a Facebook, and they took those uh, email addresses and the relationships and faked emails from people's friends. These emails said, hey, please come to our website and enter your IU password. This is the coolest thing you'll ever see. And okay, they did that. They also sent the emails out to a few people who, it came from somebody they didn't know, just completely random from somebody you don't know at indiana.edu. What they found is about 12% of the people who got an email from someone they didn't know went to the website and actually filled out the right information. They gave away their password. 12% is pretty high. But when the people got emails from somebody who appeared to be their friend, about 70% of them filled out the right information and gave away their password. So that's a significant increase. And that's simply by saying that I'm your friend. So that's a bad thing. And this is, again, why context phishing is really, really scary. The particularly nasty attack that I want to talk about is called, we like to call it browser recon. It's not a new attack. Uh, it's been around since October 2000. People have known about this, but haven't done anything about it because they didn't know it could be used in phishing. In October of 2000, phishing wasn't a big deal. It's definitely a big deal now. Basically, the idea behind this is you go to somebody's website and they figure out what your browsing history is. 
They know where you've been, what sites you've visited. Once they know that, they could probably guess which bank you use. Particularly nasty. I think I've, I've found a couple. Uh, I think quite a few other um, online stores and e-commerce websites use this to figure out which one of their competitors you've been to. That's okay. It's a little invasive. But figuring out which bank I'm from makes it really easy to figure out how to fish me, how to steal my credit card information. You know which credit card company I use. So let me tell you a little bit about how this works. So here we have a computer and we have a server. Um, I guess this is, this is slightly different than browsing history. This is actually cache history, so things your computer's downloaded. Um, normally what happens is your computer asks for a web page and then the server responds by sending you the web page. And on the web page there may be some images. In this case, we have an image called pick one. It, it asks the server for the, the image because it doesn't have it yet. And the image goes to the computer and it's saved in the cache. Once that's done, all the other images are, are downloaded and the page is shown to the user. Now, if it's in the cache, there's a slightly different behavior. So first it asks for the web page. Web page gets sent to the client. It figures out, I already have a copy of this picture. So it doesn't have to load it. And it will continue to do that for everything else that it has copies of. This makes it a lot faster to show the web page. And that's why we use web cache. We download files once, and then if we don't need to, we don't download them again. Unfortunately, you can time how long it took to load a page, or even just an image in a page, and figure out whether or not somebody has loaded it already. For example, here on the left we have a real server, and on the right we have a fisher. He's denoted by the devil. And the client in the middle is going to be a victim of one of these cache recon attacks. First of all, um, it's going to go to the phishing web page, and the phishing web page is going to say, load these three images. First, it loads an image off the Fisher's website. Second, it's told to load an image from this other website. Maybe it's a bank. And then third, it loads another picture from the Fisher's website. Now, when it's done in this order, the Fisher can approximate how much time between picture one and picture two has elapsed. And when that's done, they can approximate how long it took to load the middle picture. Since if the picture was already on the computer, it practically takes no load time, that can be compared to how long it would normally take over a network. And so you, using some statistical methods, you could figure out whether or not the picture was in the person's cache. If the picture is a logout button, that means the person has logged into a website. If it's a logout button at a bank's website, you know the person has an account with the bank. So this is a problem. Unfortunately, it's not easy to implement, but there's also the browser history that you can look at. So let's explore that a little bit. This is a normal web page with three links on it. It's relatively straightforward. It uses cascading style sheets, which is the stuff between the style, this style, and the slash style. Cascading style sheets are simply there to make text and images and layers on web pages look different. It's not a programming language. It's just a styling sheet. The, the red here, the colon visited, says that if I have a link with ID number one 
and your browser's been there, make it red. You've all seen this. Browsers normally have blue links that are underlined, and if you've been there, maybe they're purple. This is very common. Well, this in itself isn't a problem, and as, as you can see, I visited link number two. It's red. Or instead of changing the color, you can change other attributes of the links, like the background. Okay, so what does this have to do with detecting the person's history? Well, if you can change the background, you can tell it to set the background to a URL, a different web address, maybe the Fisher's web address. So now this web page is phoning home for every single link that's been visited by your browser. Not only do I know that you've visited a web page, but since each link is colored with a different ID, I can figure out which links you've visited. And of course, you can make it invisible. So this is a particularly nasty attack. And I don't really want to talk more about how the attack works since there's all sorts of literature all over and it has nothing to do with the research we did except providing the basis. Um, so I'm going to go right into why this is a problem and how to solve it. You can, you can get uh, links that people have visited. When they come to your web page, you can use this technique, find out where they've been. But how do you find out who they are? You send them a phishing email. The phishing email has a link in it that's custom to that one email address. This is normally done by phishers to figure out which emails worked or spammers to figure out which emails worked. And then when they come to your website, they bring the email address with them as part of the link. The phisher then sends a web page with lots of links on it to test where they've been. And some hits are sent back to the phisher's website saying, I've been here and I've been here. And now they know who has been where and they can begin phishing. Additionally, instead of requiring the initial phishing email to bring them to the site, you could also try and exploit the autofill feature of many browsers and automatically extract the email address from the person's browser as well. And this combination is particularly nasty. And of course, there's something called a chameleon attack that's really bad. This combines a web page that sniffs where you've been with a web page that looks different depending on where you've been. You get the page, and then it fishes you. It finds out what your history is, and then depending on which bank you probably visited, it looks different. In principle, this could be done in emails as well. So one email could be sent out to a ton of people, and it looks different depending on who looks at it. So far, the only vulnerable clients that I've been able to confirm um, as far as this email chameleon attack are web-based email clients. So that's a good thing. So anyway, moving on, there are solutions to this. Um, at the World Wide Web Conference in 2006, um, some people from Stanford presented a client-side fix, a browser plugin that essentially isolates your history. So each domain that you visit is allowed to see history items from that domain, but nowhere else. According to bank.com, you've been nowhere outside of bank.com. It's a good solution, but people have to install it. How many people are going to actually install it? How many people are going to turn it on? It has side effects. If you have a web page with a bunch of bookmark links on it, they'll never turn purple. You don't know which ones you've been to. So that's, it's not perfect, and none of the solutions are. You could also change the standards. That's what I mean by CSS limiting. Changing standards is not easy, so we won't do it. You can convince people to be paranoid. Clear your history every time you visit a web page. People aren't going to do it. They like their history. I like to go back. 
I don't know about you, I like my back button. And of course, you could attack it from the other side. You could say, well, I own a banking website. I want to make all my customers safe so nobody knows they bank with me. And that's what we're going to do. So the, there are two goals that we have in implementing a solution on the server. We have to make it hard to guess any URL that I've served, any picture, any web page, any style sheet, any flash animation. I want to make it hard to predict what the actual URL was when the person loaded it. Additionally, I want search engines to be able to index my website with predictable names. If I own bank.com, I don't want them to come, you know, I don't want people to go to the search engine and type in, uh, where is bank? and come up with garbage-looking URLs. They won't trust those, and the search engine won't like that. So those are the two important things. So somewhat formally, this is what it looks like. I'm Chase.com, an example of a banking website. I serve pages to clients. Those clients, when they load the page, enter that into their history. I don't want a fisher to be able to predict X, which is entered into their history. Additionally, if you throw a proxy server in the mix, it gets a little messier. But I don't want to be able to predict X, which is in the client's history, or the proxy server's history. This is important. So I'm going to use two techniques to present the solution. There are two things that it's going to do on the server side. First of all, it's going to add pseudonyms to all the URLs that it can. These are randomly generated numbers. They're long strings. And if uh, Fisher was trying to enumerate the number of possible pseudonyms on the end of a URL, they'd run out of time quite easily. Um, these don't take very long to generate, so that's convenient. Additionally, there are some URLs you can't put the pseudonyms upon. It's just that hard. So we're going to do something called pollution. So this is pretty straightforward. If I go to bank.com, it automatically sends me to a whole bunch of other links. Bank2.com, bank3.com google.com, ebay.com. All of those get entered into my history, even though I didn't specifically go there. This is really convenient. If all the banks collude, they can all enter all the banks' names into my history. Now, all they know, if you're a fisher, all you know is that I've gone to a bank's website. You don't know which one. But that can be kind of mean. Um, generating a bunch of traffic that's unsolicited is not a good idea. So we don't want to use that unless we absolutely have to use that. So this is what web browsing looks like right now. A web page is requested, and it's sent. We've got the server on the right, and a client requesting the page on the left. After our solution, this is what it looks like. They request with a pseudonym. This is the pseudonym on the left. It comes through our little translating proxy thingy here, ST, and the pseudonym is pulled off because it's no longer needed. Between the proxy server and the client, there may be some problems of, you know, phishing or eavesdropping. But between the client and the original server, that's the thing on the far right, there doesn't need to be a pseudonym. In fact, there shouldn't be because there wasn't before. The beauty of this technique is going to be that you can use an existing server, plug this in between the server and all of your clients, and all of a sudden they're all secure. Now the page goes back through the translating proxy, puts the pseudonyms on, translates it, does many things, and then the result is sent back to the client. So now all the links they click will have random numbers in them. Now, ideally, 
it wouldn't be two separate servers. It would be two pieces of software on the same server. It's cheaper. It's probably faster. But we implemented it this way so that you don't have to completely rewrite any websites. You just plug it in and it works. It's easy, and that means it's expandable. So what is a pseudonym? I, I talked about these randomly generated things, but where do they come from? Well, they're established. As soon as somebody comes to my website, I look to see if they have a pseudonym. If they don't, I give them one, make a new one up, add it to all the links on the web page. Any further links will have a pseudonym. I then probably want to pollute. If they already have a pseudonym, I check to see where they came from. I can use the HTTP refer header and find out which page brought them to my website. If it's one of my own web pages, I'll just use the pseudonym they came with. If it's not one of my own web pages, that may be a fisher trying to infuse a pseudonym into my system. So I'll throw it away and make a new one. When in doubt, throw it away and make a new one. Doesn't take very long. So that HTTP refer field is sometimes not there. So you could implement a strategy with cookies to determine whether or not it's valid. Um, you could use message authentication codes. There are, there are a lot of different ways to basically decide whether or not the pseudonym in use is valid. Um, so I won't go into that. If you're interested, I can point you to my paper. But there are other things to deal with. Robots come to the website. Search indexers. Google's bot that comes and pulls all the web pages off so that people can search for them. I don't want to have to privatize those. I don't want to have to hide their URLs because they're not going to be vulnerable to phishing attacks. Who do you think Google banks with? And does their bot do online banking? Probably not. So there's no need to do that. We can detect who their user agent is, figure out if it's a bot or not, and if we know for sure it's a bot, turn our system off. No overhead. Additionally, when do we pollute? I told you we should probably enter random websites into the person's history and cache if they don't have a pseudonym with the URL they're using. Well, yes, you should. But you should also consider where they came from. And, and this is totally up to people who implement the system and how much they trust all the websites around them. Um, in short, you want to pollute as little as possible because this takes a while on, on the user's browser. It's messy, and it generates unwanted traffic. What about links to off-site data? Well, if there are links on my web page to other web pages, they can sniff the refer field and figure out where the person came from. If they do that, they get a pseudonym. They can use that to try and fish. So we don't want that pseudonym going to other people's websites. We want to get that out of the HTTP refer field. We can generate a redirector on our website that will do this for us, strip off the, the pseudonym and redirect it. Um, additionally, bookmarks. People want to bookmark web pages. If they bookmark a page with a pseudonym on it, they'll always be using the same pseudonym. Then it's like not using a pseudonym at all. So we have to be careful about this. You have to use a technique, either HTTP refer or a cookie that expires quickly, to throw away these pseudonyms as soon as they're used. Um, additionally, you need to encourage people not to bookmark sites with pseudonyms. Anyway, let me go into an example of how this works. So here's a client. Bank.com is the translating proxy that I just talked about. It does all this work. 
and 10.0.0.1 is this the hidden server, the formerly known as bank.com server. We've pushed that into a, a private network behind bank.com so that it can only be accessed by our proxy. This is important. People have to be forced to go through the proxy, which to them will look like the server. So what happens is the person sends a request. We'll assume that a pseudonym is already established. And bank.com strips off the pseudonym and forwards the request on to the real server. The real server then just serves up what it normally would and sends it back to bank.com. Then all the processing starts. Say we start with these three things. We have an off-site link, we have an on-site link, and we have a relative link. First of all, the on-site link originally pointed to the real server. We now have to point to the translator instead because the translator is now pretending to be the real server. So that's replaced. Then we have to set up a redirect so that g.com doesn't know the pseudonym that was used. Finally, we have to throw in this pseudonym that we've generated, or the one that's currently in use. And notice that the relative link stays a relative link. Browsers are smart enough to figure out where the page came from and do relative links inside that domain. Once that's done, it's sent back to the client. The important part here is this is the client's perception. There's no change. This can be implemented by a service provider to protect all of their clients. That way, you don't have to convince a whole bunch of people to install an extension. You don't have to tell them to go into preferences and check a certain box. You don't have to rely on standards committees to turn something off in their software specifications. It just works. Nothing will be different from the client. This, I believe this is the most important thing because I don't think we can rely on people who are browsing the web to know exactly what they're doing or even care. But if I'm a bank and I don't want my clients to be fished, this is the easiest way to fix them. It's like a guardian angel. Okay, so there are some different policies you can define when using this, this, this proxy. Which sites do you want to hide the pseudonym from if they're going from your site off-site? That's an off-site redirection policy. Depends on how much you trust people around you. Or you're the author of your own website. Maybe you don't even have any off-site links. You don't need a policy then. Uh, there's a data replacement policy. This means what type of data do you go through and translate? I showed you HTML. There's also URLs inside CSS, JavaScript, Flash files, Java applets, you name it. So maybe different types of data need to be modified. And additionally, who are you going to specify as a robot versus a real person? When do you actually need to do this privacy? And of course, there are more special cases that I'm not going to delve deep into. But if you have distributed serving like Akamai, they serve from a whole bunch of computers the same content. And there's something to take into consideration there because maybe you need more than one proxy then. Additionally, what if I trust a site and I don't want to have to throw away a pseudonym every time somebody comes from their site to mine and generate a new one? You can make these transferred pseudonyms. Pseudonyms from one site to another that you can trust. Again, I don't want to go into depth with that. And the cache pollution reciprocity basically means that a whole bunch of websites get together and collude so that they define a set of sites that will be entered into a person's history. And I told you about the pollution and about how um, unwanted traffic may be not well received. But if all of these websites, say all the banks that you know about, 
if all of the banks decide that they want to use all of the banks' websites as pollution, then nobody will get mad about the, about the traffic. They're all pretty much sharing the same type of pollution policy. So there's still the unsolicited traffic, but this time, at least, there probably won't be any legal implications. Okay, so we implemented this. Uh, we wrote a crude Java applet just kind of to see if it would work. Um, it simulated a, a web server and acted as a, a translating proxy. We made the pseudonyms as 64-bit numbers. You could make them longer. Overhead is not much more to make them longer. Um, I use Java's secure random because it's not the fastest thing in the world, but it, it works pretty well. And um, I wrote an experimental client to test how long it took to load the pages. I wanted to know how much overhead there would be in using this in front of a web server. Of course, ideally, um, the, the translator and the web server would be running on the same machine. They'd just be different processes. Um, but initially, we didn't test that. And here's a graph of the results. And this is one of those meaningless graphs that scientists like to put up because you can't see any data in it. Um, but realistically, here's a statistical plot. The boxes that are really small are 95% of the data. On the left, you have the website as it serves pages normally. There's no translator, direct from website to client. 95% of the stuff was in that box. These are times. The basic proxy is the same thing, but it's not translating anything. It's just copying the pages from the server and sending them on to the client. If you have a proxy server, it does exactly the same thing. So there's a performance hit between having a proxy server and just going right to the, the source. The third and final element on the right is the translation server with all these features implemented. It's not much slower than an actual proxy server, a plain old proxy server. So the big overhead here seems to be in the, the way the proxy was implemented. And the seconds on the left, they're all tolerable. In a larger data set with different types of data, um, you'd see load times that skyrocket way off the top of the chart. So this is a cumulative distribution graph of the same data. This is the same data. Um, the faster a chart climbs, the better it is because it means that all, most of the data is between where it's plotted and to the left. So for example, um, on this hump right here, about 15% of the data for no translation at all direct to the web server was here or faster. And it goes on. So the idea is you want these all as close to the big thick red line that didn't do any translation as possible. The overhead difference between a proxy server and a translator is very minimal. And the fact that the lines are vertical shows that the data is cohesive and it's all representing about the same data. Well, remember I had mentioned how it would be ideal to put the web server and the translator on the same machine? That was step two of our experiment, and we tried that, and we went from this cumulative distribution plot to this one. Now there is practically no overhead whatsoever. This is in a really fast implemented, or very quickly implemented uh, prototype in Java. So I believe wholeheartedly that the overheads can be almost entirely eliminated as maybe an Apache module or something like that. So it works, and there's barely any overhead. It's not noticeable for sure. Um, but there are other things to consider, of course. Um, the user agent has to be forwarded in case the real web server does something with it cookies have to be forwarded in case the real web server sets or receives cookies. Um, there's optimizations you can do. 
since the person who deploys the server is probably the same person who wrote the website initially, you can speed up the translation by not searching through each web page. You can make template web pages that say, put pseudonym here, put pseudonym here, put pseudonym here. That'll speed things up. Uh, I used regular expressions, which aren't the fastest thing in the world. If you had a template, it'd be pretty fast. So I've talked about the, the problem, the obvious browser sniffing problem that if you weren't afraid of before, I hope you'll be wary about now. I told you about a few solutions that were implemented, specifically the one that we implemented and how it can be just plugged in between a service and clients. And I showed how our quick prototype proves that it's quite fast. Um, and if you have any questions about this, I'd love to hear them. Unless you have an encrypted connection, certainly it's possible to pick up some of the pseudonyms along the way. Sure. And that would allow someone to use the pseudonym for the capture. Um, <clears throat> but there's also the, the issue, we see a lot of spyware right. uh, that hasn't, to my knowledge, been integrated with phishing attacks much. But that would seem to be an effective workaround for these protections if I had spyware in my browser that was also reporting this information back. Um, right. Have you thought about that at all? Oh, you bet. Um, so the question was, there's the possibility that there's spyware or hijackware already on a person's computer. So it can pick off the pseudonyms right from the browser without having to worry about it. Um, and we have thought about that. This problem doesn't protect people from malware. This problem only protects people from phishing attacks that are HTML and web-based, and specifically this browser recon attack. But it's, it's completely right. If there's spyware on a person's machine, they're pretty screwed. <laughs> That's my opinion right there. Windows users. We won't get into that argument, but yes, yes. <laughs> Any other questions? Sure. Um, I heard you talk about putting the cookies on a person's computer, or, or maybe putting uh, pseudonyms and cookies. I I believe, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I don't know if I'm on the right track here, but, um, it w is that the way you implemented it, or, I mean, how would it, how would it be implemented? Because if you're putting cookies on a person's computer, there's still a big chance of grabbing information sure. from the person's computer at that point. Okay, so, so. Uh, you're, let me make sure I understand your question right. The question was that. Um, I said something about implementing this using cookies. How does that affect the security of it? And can because yeah. they can just be sniffed out of JavaScript. Exactly. Okay. Um, cookies can be used to verify whether or not a pseudonym is old. So um, what I had in mind was not to use cookies instead of putting the pseudonym in the URL. What I had in mind was when you set the pseudonym, you also set a cookie with the same value. Next time somebody comes to your website and doesn't have a pseudonym, or maybe a time has expired, you look to see if they have a cookie. If they do, and it's an old pseudonym, and it's the same pseudonym that they're using, you know for sure that it's stale. So you'd have to use the cookies with a time limit to basically expire old um, pseudonyms, but you can't use them instead of the URL problem. Um, I don't know if that helps answer your question. 
You can't use them alone to verify a pseudonym. That's for sure. Cookies have usually a session ID associated with them, and there's issues with if, if the attacker can get access to that certain session ID, they might be able to do certain things with a client computer. So one way around them is uh, you can actually do cookie-less sessions. If, I mean, you can write your own protocol or something like that, but it's just something I had in mind because it seems like a cool idea, but uh, try to eliminate the client out of it in one way or another, and cookies is we always going to talk about that more. Client. I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Okay. Um, one thing to note as well, um, this doesn't work if there's a man in the middle at all because they can just strip it right off. But I haven't seen any in the wild phishing attacks that are man in the middle <laughs> yet. <laughs> I shouldn't say I won't yet. That's also harder to pull off a man in the middle. Any other questions? We've got another one? Yeah. Uh there are many organizations that have installed border proxies that well, are used for several reasons. Security is part of it, but also uh, simply for bandwidth assistance or for filtering prohibited content. Uh, it would seem to me that if you're able to compromise in some way at that proxy or compromise, um, Actually, if the request originates from the proxy itself, that, that's where the pseudonym would go, would be for the proxy, at, at not, not at the merchant's proxy, but at the client's proxy. So, for instance, if I, if I had a, a squid proxy okay. for, for Purdue, would the pseudonym be attached to the, uh, to the proxy or to the client behind the proxy? Well, would the there be any way of doing it? Okay. Um, I think the confusion here is with the URLs as they go through that client-side proxy. I think they would just go right through. Um, I don't, if, okay, if your squid proxy was compromised, uh, it would effectively be a man in the middle between the client behind the proxy and my server. Um, so I kind of think of that as the same problem. Um, well, in part, I guess what I'm thinking here is that if the pseudonyms transited the proxy without alteration, then it would effectively reduce the effect effectiveness of the proxy for caching. Correct, yes. Yes, this does kill caching session. Okay. But um, there's also an argument to be made about whether or not secure socket layer connections should be cached ever by a proxy. Because Well, they probably can't because different keys are used. So I kind of see them as the same thing. Um, we, we can talk offline. There actually is a protocol uh, for proxies where uh, when I have to do a secure socket layer to the outside, and this is used in some environments, uh, man, uh, the that, yes, it does, that it, it, it actually does that transition. And, and that's primarily done in organizations where I'm worried about disclosure of confidential information. Right. And so the proxy is examining whatever I'm sending out over the connection. Mm -hmm. and, and it just basically reestablishes itself as sure. in the middle. Um, so I, I, I guess there are, as you said, there are some boundary cases. Akamai was another one that came to mind, or Digital Island, uh, for the way they serve. Um, this is clearly uh, isn't going to cover all the cases, but it does cover a lot of the interesting ones. Sure, sure. Oh, I, I should also note that um, I would personally use this translator for web services that maybe my clients don't want anybody to know about. 
a banking website, a commerce website, maybe um, voter registration, something like that. There's no reason this should be implemented for Google. Google doesn't need this. Um, I, there's no reason it should be implemented for a newspaper's website, unless maybe the newspaper is worried about competition. So um, I think, for the most part, things that should be cached will be cached by a proxy, but there will be a little performance hit, yeah. Any other questions? Did, did our uh, colleagues at uh, Bloomington join us? I see two of them. <laughs> well, one and a half. Do you guys over there have any questions? Can you hear me? Yeah, they can hear me. Okay. Do you guys have any questions? We only joined your talk halfway through because we had some uh, bookkeeping to take care of, so I, I don't think we do. Okay. <laughs> we'll just remind you guys to, to hit the mics when you guys ask your own questions. <laughs> That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Oh, that's it. Well, if we have no other questions, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much.